The children of Israel have left Egypt. The Jewish people were commanded, They shall make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. So the Migdosh was more than a mere structure. It was the abode of God's presence. It was built in a unique way. It was made of huge wooden planks that were stood up side by side. They rested in silver sockets and were coated with gold. The top of the Mishkan was not a solid roof. Instead, the Mishkan was covered with ornately woven tapestries. Above the Mishkan hovered a divine cloud. And the Shvatim, the 12 tribes, were encamped around the Mishkan because its holiness was the focal point of Israel's existence. That's okay. Oh.
Um, Good morning. Please turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. As I said before, today we're looking at Parshat Terumah. Terumah meaning the sacred gifts. The specific mounts aren't uh, designated. Um, They're rather left to the individual choices. They're, uh, as we look, wait for the... Just a sec, sorry. Apparently it was difficult to go from the CD-ROM to the, uh, to the PowerPoint presentation. This is what, oh, hey, look, there we go. Okay. Yeah, we've established that. Next slide, please. Oh, I have the thing, don't I? There we go. <laughs> All right. Exodus 25. <clears throat> then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly, with his heart, you shall take my offering. Um, The gifts here, uh, as described, are gold, silver, bronze, uh, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, um, goat's hair, uh, ram skin, as it describes. And then what's the, what there in, uh, in verse 5, it says ram skin dyed hair, and then I have badger skins. What do some of your texts have? Porpoise skins, sea cows? Yeah, like all the commentaries like all said different things. They said they, they really don't know. It, it was, it, it was one, one of them even said, this was an animal that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, uh, and... What's that? Dinosaur skins, yeah. <clears throat> Acacia wood, oils, spices, onyx stones, and gemstones. Now, all this material was precious. Um, they was precious because for the dye, for instance. The dyeing would have been um, a labor-intensive uh, effort um, that would have had to have been di- uh, gathered from like various uh, snails and shellfish and different sort of insects and things like that. Um, acacia wood, uh, long, hard-lasting, durable wood. Um, see, God's gathering of materials is... Um, oh, where do they get these? Home Depot? When they plundered Egypt. These, this is, a lot of this, this material came with them when they let it and stop at the store. You know, this material came with them. When they left, uh, when they left Egypt, when they left slavery, um, and as I said before, these are free will offerings. Um, these are offerings that uh, 
they are to give willingly with their heart from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. There were other uh, offerings, other things that were uh, commanded from them later on, but for the tabernacle, well, this is what we're going to get to, that that's what they're going to do with this material. The instruction is to say, from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take an offering. See, there's, a, there's this choice that um, Israel, that the Hebrew people have. Um, that is, God is going to say, what you've taken, what you've gathered from the Egyptians, I'm, I'm giving you a choice with this. Will it serve me, or will it serve you? And in later texts, we're going to talk about some of the other things that they do with uh, the material that they have with them. Um, will these gifts that had been designed to serve Pharaoh, will these gifts serve Pharaoh or, or will they serve a different purpose? Will they serve um, God? Now, obviously, from the, from the video, what they did from these... Uh, oh, where's my thing? What they did with this is make the tabernacle. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just show you, just show you shall make it. Um, in 1956, there was a film that was released that uh, starred Charlton Heston, and it was directed by Cecil B. DeMille uh, called The Ten Commandments. I assume you guys are... Uh, familiar with this film? Now, um, we have some uh, film students, actually, or film graduates in, in the congregation. Um, it's interesting to look at the movie, not necessarily in comparison to um, the book of Exodus, but what's interesting about it is that um, the movie never made any kind of attempts to say this is going to be... Um, an exact uh, narrative or exact verse-by-verse -verse presentation of the book of Exodus. Um, so some of the details that you're going to find in the book of Exodus are going to be a little altered by the movie. Um, why would have they done that? Why do, you, why do you think that is? Just shout it out. Okay, easier for production. Um, like for instance... You look at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Let's see. The burning bush, the incident and the description of Moses at the burning bush happens in chapter 3. How long in the movie does it take for Charlton Heston to get to the burning bush? Like eight hours. On the other hand, if we look at that conversely, and we see that what is it about the book of Exodus that gives certain details that other details kind of are sweeping. I, I love to tell and to talk about the story of God's creation. It's just one of the things that gets me up out of bed in the morning. I just um, I get really excited when I get to talk about that like narrative arc and all that business. Um, but what's interesting when you actually look at these texts is that God's going to give us certain information in great detail 
And other things like the development of Moses' character as, you know, the Ten Commandments kind of expands on a little bit um, is not going to be as different. And what's interesting about it is that almost a third of the book of Exodus is devoted to the Mishkan, the the tabernacle. Um, Mishkan is the Hebrew word for dwelling place. Um, And almost a third of Exodus is devoted to that. Um, So there's kind of a a narrative that if this was just a narrative, that could be looked at against the idea that maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe there's something else that we're supposed to be gathering there. Um, And I think that what we're going to find is that the description of the tabernacle in this great detail um, is going to show a little bit more about what Israel really cares about in the greater context. Um, One of the things that I came across when I was studying this text is that the context, as I want to understand it, I want to read this text as Israel held captive in Egypt, um, Moses leads them out, they're in the wilderness, and then they're giving these instructions. They're given the law, and then they're given the instructions about the tabernacle. I want... Um, that to be the context. And I think that definitely is the context of as it is described. But one of the things that um, I was reading about is that the final shape of the book of Exodus probably came to its final form uh, around not this time, but rather the time of the Babylonian exile. This was a time when Israel was in great chaos. Um, they had been ripped from their homeland, and now they're trying to wrap their heads around what it is that's happening now. Um, and they're trying to connect with some things that were in their history. This it's, It paints Exodus as like a, a photo album, the details that they give us of the tabernacle. It's like flipping through a photo album of God's faithfulness. It's as if they're saying, as it once was with Moses, or as it once was with Israel and Moses, show... Um, it shall be again. The details, um, they outline a worship purity. They help the people realize that um, with compromise, the compromise of what they had been struggling with before, that compromise will lead to idolatry. So the details, as the tabernacle is explained, it creates a tabernacle. It creates worship purity um, for a people that are without one, for a people that are that are struggling with great chaos and great questions. Um, But most importantly, the detail as it describes um, give a detail of the God who has made promises to them. The God that made promises from um, their fathers, from Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. Um, The details as it's described in the sanctuary tell the Hebrew people, tell the nation of Israel something about God and God's holiness. See, ingrained in Hebrew culture is um, these constant reminders of of God's presence. Throughout um, Hebrew history, I think what you find is um, they just identify with these texts. They just, they they memorize them. They, um, it, it, so much of this in the story of the Exodus speaks to their identity and their identity as a people. Um, and what's interesting about uh, the story as we're actually finding it is that the text moves from a narrative um, where it doesn't speak of, of God 
far away on, on some mountain or something like that. But this text centers on God at their camp. It's not about Moses ascending anymore. This, this is about God coming down. So that's the way it happens. Um, that's what it is with the tabernacle. Now, um, we'll talk about some of the specifics. The Ark of the Covenant. Now, I once saw a documentary about the raiders of the lost Ark of the Covenant, and I tell you, you don't want to do that. The Ark marked divine presence. It was the most holy object in the tabernacle. Now, as we slide through these, um, you're going to see, these are kind of artist renderings, lots of debate and controversy from Jewish and Christian scholars and alike that talk about what it is that these, um, these furnishings, this furniture actually look like. So this is just one artist's rendering of the Ark of the Covenant. If you looked at, uh, remember the, um, the video, it showed something um, very different. Um, so the descriptions, as we get it for the, uh, um, for the tabernacle, start with the Ark of the Covenant. Um, as I said before, it's the most holy object in the tabernacle. It was a chest and it was artistically designed, and it was built to hold the Ten Commandments. It was approximately three uh, by three-fourths, by two and a quarter, by two and a quarter, made of acacia wood and uh, covered with gold. The gold, um, or the cover, was uh, better known as the atonement cover. That was the place where, it was said to be the place where estranged parties were reconciled. It's possible that the cover was, um, was meant as a throne, or a footstool of God. And this is probably the most, well, not most interesting thing, but something that really struck me, is that those poles, there are other parts of the tabernacle that we're going to talk about that get moved, that are built to be portable, um, but they poles can be removed. But the poles of the Ark of the Covenant, the text tells us, are not to be removed. Something about the presence of God needs to constantly be in their minds as being Um, and it was designed with uh, cherubim, angels with children faces, um, angelic guardians of the throne, um, made of gold and had outstretched arms uh, facing one another with their heads turned down to the atonement cover. The showbread table. Now, a lot more detail about the showbread and the table kind of get into in, in other um, portions of our text. But... Um, this table held 12 uniquely shaped breads. Um, the, tab- uh, the table symbolized uh, God's gift of lively- livelihood. Some of the, um, the rabbi commentators that I was reading talked about a lot about that. That this table was meant to show that um, regardless of the work and the sweat and the time, talent, and treasure that um, God's people give to the tabernacle or to anything else, it is God who gives prosperity. Um, the showbread actually literally means the bread of the presence. Um, it was only eaten by the priests, and it was never to be removed. The menorah, or the golden lampstand, stood opposite from the table um, in, in the holy place. As you saw before, um, the uh, tabernacle itself was separated with the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, and then the holy place outside with um, the menorah and the table. And um, It uh, stood about six feet high, fashioned out of one piece of gold. 
about 75 pounds. Um, and what it did was it symbolized the eternal flame of Torah. Um, there were almond blossoms that were mentioned in the text. It's possible that uh, because the, um, the almond tree blossomed in January, uh, before all the other trees, that could symbolize new life. The tabernacle building itself, um, as you saw an overview in the video. Now, what's interesting is, I use that word a lot, don't I? Um, on one hand, it protected the people from the dangers of unauthorized intrusion. But on the other hand, it provided a way for God's people to approach his holiness. Um, once a year, on Yom Kippur, uh, the priest would enter the intersection of the tabernacle called the most holy place um, uh, with a blood atonement to meet the Lord. The tabernacle itself, or the most holy place itself, was um, separated by the veil. Uh, this separated the area where the Ark of the Covenant is from the rest of the tabernacle. Um, I already said that. Sorry. Then we have the altar of burnt offering. Weird how there weren't any pictures of this online. That was the best picture I could find <laughs> of the altar of burnt offering. Um, this is where the offerings were brought. Uh, it was made of acacia wood and it was overlaid with copper. Um, the altar was filled with earth and it had four horns or corners that kind of protruded up. Um, there's a lot more on the altar in two where it kind of gets interesting because as I was driving here the tabernacle courtyard you also make the court of the tabernacle this is the like kind of the fence and I was driving here uh, this morning and I was thinking to myself what what am I possibly going to say about the courtyard doesn't seem like that's a very important thing. And one of the things that it uh, that the commentary said was that it's about 100 by 200 feet, and it's shielded um, from view by the curtains. And and then I heard that story that Rick said, and that like smacked me in the face. The people of Israel, the Hebrew people at this point in their history, are in the midst of chaos. They are in the midst of the wilderness. And then this morning we come to church and we're given an image of a worship service surrounded by protectors in the midst of utter chaos. That was a very powerful thing for me. See, the, the point of all of this that God wants to go with us. This story of Israel is a story of ups and downs, of trust and mistrust, of faith and denial, of worship and idolatry. It should remind you of somebody. And the tabernacle was portable. As I said before, the poles of the Ark of the Covenant weren't to be removed. And the tabernacle itself was designed to be portable. It guarded them 
it guarded them against idolatry, these details. And it helped them realize that in the midst of their chaos, God will meet them there. God cannot be localized to one fixed geographic location. He reveals himself in the tabernacle as we see it, but God wants to go with his people. He can't be localized, and therefore he cannot be controlled. This serve them as a reminder of God's holiness. See, there was a safety in their servitude. As crazy as it sounds, that oppression that they came from offered a sort of safety. And there's a kind of a movement from that safety or that understanding to the unknown, the unknown of the wilderness, the unknown of the chaos. The way of God's people is the way of the sojourner, the one that wanders through the wilderness. There are all sorts of evils and horrible things in this world that remind us of the chaos that we're living in from day to day. But our God, our God sees that wilderness. He sees the chaos. He recognizes the chaos, and he meets us there. The tabernacle wasn't on a mountaintop somewhere. The tabernacle was in the center of their camp. The tabernacle was in the midst of the wilderness, or the midst of the people that are in the midst of the wilderness. And as you see, um, the... uh, Um, this language kind of gets expanded. This language starts getting ingrained in these people that God is going to be with them. Turn with me to Psalm 85. Starting in verse 8. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in their land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will increase. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and shall make His footsteps our pathway. So there's a greater understanding. There's a deepening understanding in Hebrew poetry, in Hebrew writings, about what's going to happen, about the, the, the more um, settled account of what it looks like to have a God that desires to settle in their midst, the God that desires to go with his people. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. 
this. This just knocks you out, I think. David, my servants shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I will give. Uh, I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, yeah. moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever more. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever forever that doesn't make any sense slavery happens bondage happens exile happens and you want to talk to me about forever you want to talk to me about the god that puts his sanctuary in his midst forever it continued the talk The Hebrew wanderings continued as they faced one bit of oppression after another. And then, in the beginning, we're told, was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word there, as I read it, in the, uh, the words for dwelt among us, is literally said, God tabernacled with his people. Jesus is the tabernacle in our midst. Jesus brings that order from the midst of chaos. Jesus says to the people in the wilderness, God wants to go with you. God wants to set up his camp. God wants to set up his tabernacle in the midst of your job. He wants to set up his tabernacle in the midst of our church, of your house church, of the laundry mat, of your school. Wherever you go, God wants to go with you. And he wants to settle in your midst and in the midst of your family and your friends and the community that you love. And he wants us to look forward. He wants us to not only think about the past and think about where we have came from, and not only wants us to build our ideas and um, our, build our community uh, with him in our midst now, he wants us to look forward to it. And this is the most exciting thing I think I've ever read in my life. Revelation 21. Now, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain because the former things have passed away because God is in their midst. He wants us to anticipate that the wanderings will one day end. That the chaos that we find ourselves in now will one day end. It will one day come to order. He wants us to know that in his tabernacle, that his tabernacle will be established with his son Jesus as king. There's a uh, story I recently read from a pastor who says, I was having lunch in September with a group of people I had just met. We were discussing the kind of work we each did and the places we'd been. And one man started telling stories about being in the Marines. He had led one of the first groups into Iraq during the Gulf War in 1991. He talked about what it was like to enter enemy territory and to be shot at, about the complexities of war. And he had us all on the edge of our seats. And during one battle that he and his Marines won quickly, they had to arrest the soldiers who had been shooting at them. They lined them up and were handcuffing them when one of them ran up to him waving a letter, begging to have it sent immediately. The man was frantic and started causing a scene, but he kept, kept repeating that this letter he was holding had to be sent immediately. He then looked the Marine in the eyes and said, Please, please mail this letter for me. It's to my father, and he must know that I love him. The man telling the story paused. He looked around the table at each of us and he said, He had no idea about the troubled relationship that I had with my father. Here I am, out in the middle of nowhere, in the desert of Iraq, trying to arrest a group of soldiers with moments who moments before were trying to kill me, staring at a man who wants me to mail a letter for him, thinking I could be him. There's no shortage of the chaos that our lives suffer. In our communities, we can pray and hope that we can support each other and love each other through it. But our ultimate hope has to be that Jesus has settled in our midst. Jesus has said that God wants to go with you. Jesus has said, I'm there. I'm not going anywhere. And when you leave here, coming with you. There's no place that you go. There's no dark alley that you're going to go into 
then I'm not going to follow you. Because you're my people. Let me pray. I will not make my boast in the riches of gold or the wisdom and strength of my own. I will place my trust in the things of this life. I will not place my trust in the things of this life. For the one that I love is more. From you is everything. Through you, I can live again. To you be the glory forevermore. In the cross, I will boast, and my glory will be in the one who left heaven for me. All my trust is secure, and my hope overflows. For the one that I love is more. From you, through you, to you, Jesus. From you, through you, to you, Jesus. From you is everything. Through you I can live again. To you be the glory.